This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. It's wonderful to be together. If I haven't had an opportunity to meet you, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's just great to have you with us if you're new. Thanks so much for uh, coming and uh, worshiping with us. If you're not new, thanks for coming as well. We're glad to have new folks and old folks as well. Uh, Okay, here's what we're going to do. If you have a Bible, if you could turn to 1 Timothy 3, and uh, we're going to be looking at this passage today. If you don't have a Bible, uh, under the seat in front of you, there should be a Bible. So why don't you grab that, grab one of those Bibles, and turn to page 576, and you'll be able to track along with us. And if, uh, if you don't own a Bible or can't find your Bible at home or whatever the case may be, just take that with you. That's our, that's our small gift to you. We'd love for you to have a Bible. So we finished the book of Nehemiah after months, and uh, we said, hey, well, next we're going to go to Colossians. But I'm going to do this little two-week mini-series uh, between Nehemiah and Colossians. So over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about church leadership. Today, uh, we are going to talk about a passage that uh, speaks of elders. And then the next week, we're going to follow the very next passage and uh, look at a passage that teaches about deacons. And then on uh, April the 22nd, which is uh, two weeks, that Sunday night, we have a Grace Church update meeting. We're just open. Anybody wants to come out on a Sunday night, we got a, a few updates for you about the church. And in that meeting, I'll talk about both uh, how we process and um, ordain an elder and how do we process and install deacons. We have people doing deacon work in our church, but we've never sort of publicly evaluated, affirmed them, acknowledged them, and, and uh, sort of set them in in an official uh, capacity in the office of deacon. So we're going to do that. Uh, it's never too late, right? We're about to hit our 13th birthday, so you might as well officially, we've had elders from the beginning, but might as well have officially have some deacons. So we're going to do that as part of the process. Um, and today, we, like I said, we're going to look at elders. So we currently, as a church, uh, we have three uh, elders, Rob Tombrella, uh, who did the baptism today, and Bob Hughes, and uh, myself. And then we have one elder in training, who is Caleb, right down here in the front row, Caleb Wilkinson, who is here doing a one-year internship with us. Uh, called a, We're calling it a pastoral internship. So last summer, he moved here and began a pastoral internship for one year. And we just kind of made an agreement. At the end of the year, no pressure. At the end of the year, you can walk, and that's fine. We love you. We hope it was a great year. And at the end of the year, well, we can give you your walking papers as well. Either way, uh, it's no, no commitment on either end. But here's what happened. Like really early in the internship, actually before they even got here, but early in the internship, we looked and said, Caleb and Madi are gold. And so I hope they stay. You know, I hope they stay. I hope they stay because they are uh, making such a difference in our, in our church. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, so we, and we certainly wanted them to be able to be with us. So uh, after a lot of uh, prayer and discussion and consideration, they let us know officially this last week they're staying and that they want to be here. So... Which is really good, and uh, I just want to commend them because their family is all out west, so the sort of comfortable thing to do in many ways would be to be in Arizona or uh, California, um, where family is, but they have felt like, this is what they've told us, is that we feel like, yes, we love our family for sure, uh, but the Lord has has joined our hearts to this church family. And this is where we're supposed to be. And this is where we want the, the Lord wants us to be. So I just really appreciate that sort of uh, commitment and uh, devotion. And you can pray all their family moves here. They would, they would they'd be happy for you to pray for that for them. So uh, anyway, so that's, that's what happened. So since they began, uh, since Caleb began his internship, uh, he's done a lot of uh, biblical counseling for us and uh, for you, for all of us, and uh, also launched a marriage ministry. Um, which we didn't create, but we're uh, using called Reengage, and uh, that's in the second semester right now and going really well. We really hope that's going to be something that 
would affect all the marriages in our church as well as reaching people outside of our church. So on the 22nd, when we do that uh, Grace Church update meeting on Sunday night, one of the things I'll be doing is kind of giving an update on uh, what is Caleb's role in moving forward as he's in this elder training process? What does that look like? And how, and how do we invite the congregation into that process as well of evaluation and, and um, uh, God willing affirmation uh, expect of him uh, as an elder in the future. So we'll draw you into all of that. Okay, so today this passage we're looking at is on elders. And if, you, if you're a guest or even if you're not, I, I mean, I, if I'm here hearing that, I'm going, this is an opportunity to check out mentally a sermon on elders. So I'll just kind of look at Facebook or whatever's going on. But I want to ask you not to do that. And here's why because later in the sermon, I've got a huge point that I want you to hear. And if you don't listen between now and then, you're gonna miss the huge point. And the huge point won't be as huge as it could be in your life. So how's that for a tease for what's coming? Uh, just track with me and then let's see how the Lord will, uh, will speak to all of us. So let me read this text and then I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna jump right in. So this is 1 Timothy 3 verses one through seven. This is God's word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open this text up to all of us, that you would speak to us through it, and that you would um, open our eyes for your purposes uh, for us, and we pray ultimately that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, as we know every text of scripture ultimately connects to you and what you have done for us. So speak to us today. I pray that you would uh, fill me with your spirit, that I could communicate your word of truth um, Lord, then that your power would attend the preaching of the word and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so verse one, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So let me talk a little bit about that term to start with, overseer. That's maybe not a term we use a ton, but it appears a number of times in the New Testament. And what we find in the New Testament is this term overseer is used uh, as a synonym for some other terms that maybe you've heard more frequently. So for instance, uh, in chapter 5 of this letter, this same group of overseer, the overseer, the overseers are called elders. So that's another term that is often used. Um, in Titus 1, uh, they're called elders and overseers together. In 1 Peter 5, this group of people are called the verb, uh, the verb shepherd is used, shepherd uh, God's people, which is the verb form of the noun pastor. And so the word pastor is used at numbers of places in the New Testament. And in Acts 20, all three of these are used in the same chapter to refer to the same group of people, overseer, elder, and pastor. So sometimes churches will sort of distinguish what, what maybe those different roles do, but ultimately in the scripture they're used synonymously to speak of the same office. Not only that, but they're most of the time, here it says office of overseer, but most of the time they're used in the plural because the church is led by a group of overseers, a team of pastors, a group of elders, um, and they lead in a plurality, which means that it's not one person sort of uh, leading in some way, but it's a group of people, a team. A, uh, that way it provides an accountability and different gifts work together and, and a single perspective is not uh, leading the church, but multiple perspectives and, and arriving at a, uh, a wise consensus on decisions and that sort of thing. So usually we see it plural in the New Testament. A group teaches the church, a group cares for the church, a group 
group protects uh, the doctrine of the church and protects against wolves even. A group of overseers serve um, in a plurality. And each of those terms sort of indicate uh, a different function of the, of the same office. So for instance, an overseer emphasizes the role of providing oversight. That's a brilliant point, by the way. An overseer provides oversight. You can't just get this stuff anywhere, let me tell you. Uh, overseer, so the role of oversight is what an overseer does. Or the, uh, the term pastor emphasizes the role of shepherding, which is providing care, leading, protecting, feeding uh, sheep. Uh, the role of elder indicates the necessity of spiritual maturity. It may not be necessarily age maturity. Timothy himself is a young man that Paul is writing to, but it, it speaks of a maturity, uh, a discernment, a sobriety of character where a person has, even if they're younger, has some gravitas to their character and there's a, a, a maturity and sobriety about them. So Paul calls this, verse 1, the office of overseer. So is the overseer or this group of overseers, are they the ones that are uh, in charge of the church, we could say? Well, uh, I want to answer that with the unequivocal answer, no. They are not the ones who rule the church. At, at the risk of sounding like I'm kind of giving the Sunday school answer, uh, let me say that Jesus rules the church. Jesus is in charge of the church. And this is not just a flippant or a trick question, but this is a very important point because churches that don't get this and leaders that don't get this end up in trouble. This is Jesus' church. Jesus says in Matthew, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What's he saying? The church is my people. We are his church, and he is building his church. We don't invite Jesus in to bless our work and say, hey, Lord, would you kind of like to be a part of what we're doing and join our mission? It's the exact opposite of that. It is a distinct privilege and honor that any of us get to serve in any role and participate in the greatest thing happening on the planet today, which is Jesus reaching people, saving people, incorporating them into local churches and building his people for his own glory, for his father's glory. So he is building his church. Or think about the great, what's called the Great Commission oftentimes uh, in Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, not the local elders. All authority on heaven and earth is given to Jesus. He says, therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus says, I have all authority. I am the ultimate overseer, and I'm charging you to go and share this good news and make disciples. But he is the one with authority. He is the one that rules over not only his people, but the universe. And, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but this term overseer is actually a term that designates Christ in the Bible. So for instance, in 1 Peter 2, it says this, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, capital S, and overseer, capital O, of your souls. Peter writes to the church and he says, look, you are returned. You are under the great shepherd, the good shepherd. Now that church had local elders, we find out in chapter five. They had local shepherds. They had someone they could identify as shepherds, but Jesus is the great shepherd and he is the overseer of your souls. So, so elders, pastors, overseers are to point everyone to the great overseer. Uh, not point everybody into themselves, but to build them into Christ and his purposes and what he's doing in his church. So we don't want to overemphasize the role of elders. We don't want to put them on a pedestal. Uh, they are sheep too, and they look to the shepherd for their souls, just as we all do. He is our shepherd. He is our overseer. We don't put them on a pedestal. We live in a culture that's enamored with celebrity, so we're not looking to make a pastor a celebrity or treat a pastor like a celebrity or something like this. We're saying Jesus is the one we celebrate. He is the famous one. He is the ultimate one, and so we don't overemphasize the role of elders. So if Jesus is in charge of the church, where do these leaders come from? 
Where do they come from? Well, the ascended Christ in the scripture, it says that when he ascended, he gave gifts. He gave gifts, and it says this, that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and for what we're talking about today, the shepherd teachers. Some, some translations say pastor teachers, pastors and teachers, it's probably the same office, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So Jesus, it's his idea that the church would have leaders, and among the leaders, he, he uh, gifts pastors to the church. It says previously in that same passage, there are gifts to equip the church so that the people in the church do the ministry, not the shepherds and teachers or the evangelists, the prophets, the apostles, but the people serve and the people reach out, but they are equipped by leaders who train, teach, and help them create a context for ministry. So it's Jesus who gives us leaders. Uh, We see this as well in Acts 20. Acts 20, 28, Paul is speaking to the elders in Ephesus, and he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves, he says to those elders, and to all the flock, that's a shepherd, pastor term, in which the Holy Spirit has made you the overseers, made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So what's he saying? He's saying, you know, you didn't just say, hey, I'm an overseer, or something like this. It was the Holy Spirit that gifted you, called you, and then gave you that role affirmed by the people. Uh, they follow the leaders, but, they, but it's the Spirit. Leadership wasn't a human idea. It was God's idea. It's the Spirit that made them overseers. Or think about the first part of Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, certainly elders give an account to the church, to one another, but ultimately they're going to give an account to Jesus. So Jesus not only gifts people, here's kind of what we get in this whole section of scriptures we're reading. He gifts people, he calls people, he, he trains them and enables them, puts them in a church to equip people. The Holy Spirit makes them an overseer in that church, and then they will give an account I could say, I am one of these. We will give an account uh, to the Lord for how we care for the people of God. So Jesus thinks it's important that the church have leaders, and we want, we need what the church provides for leaders. So we could also say we don't want to underemphasize the role of elders or pastors. We don't want to underemphasize, we don't overemphasize, put them on a pedestal, treat them like something, you know, unusual or something, just humans, just sheep, just fallen, just sinful like every one of us. But they do have a unique role in building the people of God that the Lord put them there. So we don't, we don't want to underemphasize like, oh, who needs leaders? We don't need any leaders. That's not important. Well, Jesus seemed to think it was important. So don't overemphasize and we don't underemphasize as well. Now, when we dive into this text, what we find out uh, right away could be a bit surprising because what we find out is that this passage tells us very little about what an overseer is to do and tells us a lot about what an overseer is to be like. It's really a passage about character and how the leader leads himself and how the leader also leads his family. I think we could kind of summarize this section of of the chapter and say that in order to oversee the church, the overseer must first oversee himself and his family, must oversee himself. This is really about self-leadership, self-oversight by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, And so the potential overseer is evaluated on how he oversees his own life and his family. And the existing overseer is, in an ongoing way, held accountable to this standard of self-management. Now, what is this overseer to be like? We could say there's a two-word summary in this passage, verse 2. The overseer must be above reproach. So the two-word summary is above reproach. And everything that follows spells out what it means to be above reproach, describes what it is to be above reproach. So what is a reproach? Uh, Reproach means a cause of disgrace. Reproach is uh, something that discredits. And so the idea is here, there should be nothing about the overseer's life about his conduct that would discredit the gospel, that would disgrace the name of Jesus. Now, obviously, every overseer is is sinful. Every overseer fails. 
Every overseer has flaws, both flaws they know about and flaws they're blind to. Every overseer has weaknesses. Every overseer disobeys the Scripture in various areas of their life. So nobody is even close to perfect. But the point of above reproach is that his sins and failures mustn't be of a sort of scandalous nature that would discredit the name of Christ, or they must not be a lifestyle nature. For instance, one of the things is uh, he shouldn't be quarrelsome. Well, there's a difference in having a quarrel and being a person defined as quarrelsome in their lifestyle. Those are two very different things. Uh, One is being human, and you can repent. We can repent of both. But one is just kind of being human. The other is a a pattern of life that discredits the gospel because because of its lifestyle. So it, it can't be of a scandalous nature. It can't be of a lifestyle nature. So in order to be an overseer in the church, someone must oversee himself and must uh, oversee his family. So the first thing we see here, what does that um, above reproach look like? Uh, First of all, he must be the husband of one wife. Uh, Let me say before we get into this, and this would be a much more lengthy teaching uh, and explanation at another time. I can't really get in, don't have time to get into this right now, but I I keep using the pronoun he, and uh, different Different churches understand the Scripture differently, Um, I get that, but we understand the Scripture in this context just a few verses earlier that Paul, the apostle in writing this, limits this particular role, not other roles in the church, but this particular role that we're talking about, uh, to males. In in chapter 2, so look up three verses, verse 12, I do not permit a woman, this is Paul writing in this context, to teach or to exercise authority over a man. He's not talking about a universal principle in life that women don't teach men or that women don't have authority over men uh, in all of life. That's not what he's saying because certainly they do uh, in various contexts. What he's saying is in the gathered church when there is this teaching and the exercising of authority, which are the two aspects of an overseer, an elder, this is in the context of that. He's saying in that context in the gathered church when there is instruction to the, to the church with authority that in the elder role that, uh, that that is a male role, he says here, that, it is, uh, that that's the, the function. Uh, and so that ultimately uh, the limitation here is that a woman would, uh, should, does not assume the role of overseer in the life of the church. Now the next passage we're going to look at uh, on deacons next week uh, does not provide that same kind of uh, limitation. So the office of deacon is male and female, as are the other ministries of the church. Uh, but in this role, Paul makes that uh, distinction that we just read a few verses up in this context. So the person doesn't have to be married, but uh, if it, but he is to be the husband of one wife. So the Bible is, is certainly the New Testament's not. Uh, allowing polygamy. It's not just saying, just don't be a polygamist, just have one wife. But the idea really is, could be translated, that he is to be a one, uh, he is to be a one woman man. The husband of one wife means a one woman man. What does that mean? That in his heart and in his practice, he is devoted to his spouse. He is sexually faithful. And so this is really holding up a standard of morality, of sexual faithfulness in his marriage, both physically and in his heart. He's to be sexually faithful. So our elders, we, we, th- this is something that obviously we pay attention to all these. This is one we pay attention to as well. Um, <clears throat> we seek to, we're accountable to the church. And in our own times together of study and prayer, uh, we seek to have accountability with one another. And uh, so we've done that through different ways, through studies of application of of character uh, uh, teachings and studies that we've done. But one we've done regularly is to ask each other a set of questions. One of those questions is, have um, have you viewed sexually explicit material? Because that would be not being, we're each married, that would be not being faithful to our wives in our hearts or minds if we are viewing sexually explicit material. So we ask each other about that and uh, encourage each other, help each other, pray for each other. Another one would be, we ask is, have you been uh, in a context uh, with a woman that would even appear to be compromising? 
not only were you compromised or were you compromising, but even appears that way. So we, we try to hold those values and talk about that. That's very important because many leaders are taken down by sexual sin. And uh, so that's something that we, we seek to address here locally on our team. As he goes through this, he talks about more aspects of what it means to be above reproach. It's not just being faithful sexually in the marriage, but look at it. What's next? Verse 2, he, to be sober-minded, which means to be clear-headed, alert, aware, um, fears the Lord. It's to be a person that fears the Lord, that acts wisely. Um, a sober-minded person is someone who has sound judgment. So the overseer must be someone who is alert and fears the Lord and uh, has, it makes good decisions because there's a sobriety about their thinking. Number, uh, the next one, not number, but the next one is he is to be self-controlled, sober-minded and self-controlled. That means he's to oversee himself, that by the Holy Spirit's power, one of the fruit of the spirits is um, self-control, that he's not to be governed by his emotions or governed by his passions, not to be ruled by his appetites. So he's not to be, as a lifestyle, an angry person, you know, with outbursts of anger. He's to be someone who has self-control. I mean, he's never angry, but that shouldn't characterize his life, but self-control should characterize his life. Shouldn't be gluttonous, shouldn't be greedy, shouldn't be lazy, shouldn't be flighty, but this is someone who can manage their work and manage their time. Someone who's not impulsive or reactionary. So when something comes up that's flying off the handle in a panic or in a rage or in anger, that's not self-controlled. But someone who's measured, someone who's wise in decision-making. So self-controlled. Next it says this should be a person that's respectable. His lifestyle should naturally elicit respect. Those who know this person should say, yeah, I respect that person. Um, They're not perfect. They got flaws. I see those. But I have respect for their walk with Christ. Next, verse 3, it says they should not be a drunkard. It doesn't say they can't have a drink. It says they shouldn't get drunk. They shouldn't be a person who, is, uh, who gets drunk. Why? Well, because in a drunken, per- a drunken person uh, it lacks sobriety, literally, but lacks awareness. Uh, the drunk person uh, doesn't have the ability to think clearly. The drunk person doesn't have the ability to lead effectively. The drunk person is, is not clear-headed. Uh, and it's also a hindrance to the other things we just read, right? The drunkard is not someone that is respected, uh, is not someone who is self-controlled, is not someone literally who is sober-minded. So the passage is saying don't uh, don't, uh, don't give yourself over to, uh, we could say, any substance abuse. Any, any substance abuse would fit there. Next, verse 3, to be, uh, the, the overseer is to be violent, but uh, not violent, but gentle. Not violent. Boy, I, hope, I could hear that's going to be a nice little sound clip. The overseer is to not to be violent, but gentle. Gentle. This means that someone who harms others through verbal abuse or certainly physical abuse is not to be someone who can care for the people of God. Shepherd is called to be gentle. Doesn't mean that they never bring correction or anything like that or never rebuke someone. There, there's a place for that. But he is to do so gently. He is to be, have gentleness that reflects compassion and care for the sheep. The shepherd doesn't drive the sheep, but gently leads the sheep, and gently leads primarily by example. Not to be, verse 3, quarrelsome. Not to be quarrelsome. Now, this book has a lot, 1 Timothy has a lot to do with defending sound doctrine. And so he is to defend sound doctrine. He is actually to correct false teachers in this book, but he's not to do so as a quarrelsome person. He's not to be looking to pick a fight. He's not to be looking to try to provoke people, to have little doctrinal disputes with everybody, to go looking for that sort of a thing. In chapter 6, Paul addresses false teachers in this church, and he says that the false teachers have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. So these false teachers are out arguing with everybody. Anybody says anything on Facebook, they got a comment about it. Oh, yeah, well, well, what about this? And throwing verses out there. 
Uh, they're, you know, they got their own blog going and just arguing with anybody, no, nothing wrong with that, but arguing with anybody that uh, wants to say anything about them. So it's, quarrelsome means that you are argumentative, you're arrogant, you're looking to critique and find fault in others, both personally and as I just illustrated, digitally. This is not only someone's personal life, but also their social media life uh, should reflect being gentle and not quarrelsome. Someone who is quarrelsome online is someone that should not be caring for uh, God's sheep in the church. Not a lover of money, verse 3. Not a lover of money. Must oversee his desire for money. This is self-oversight. Shouldn't be given to greed. Jesus says you can't worship God and mammon or money at the same time. So there shouldn't be a worship of uh, money. An overseer can't be motivated by money and honor God and serve others. Now, an elder may work full-time in the marketplace, may have a job in the marketplace and serve uh, voluntarily uh, part-time in the church. So with a job in the marketplace, an elder might uh, have means, might have a substantial salary. If someone is gifted in leadership, that may show up in the marketplace and they may be of a responsible job in the marketplace, and they may have a decent salary. So it doesn't mean that the elder can't have means. It just means that that person can't trust those means, but has to be a generous person. So the person who makes a significant salary, perhaps, and still serves God's church should be known. A uh, person working a job in the marketplace, making a lot of money, should be generous. Actually, everybody should be generous, but you get the point. I'm, we're talking about overseers here and how they handle their money. So that's kind of what it says about people who are uh, called to this there to have self-management. And lastly, there is to be a management of the family, or as verse 4 says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So he is to oversee and instruct and serve and encourage and protect and compassionately care for his family. It's to do that first. The family is where he gets experience for ministry and where you see what kind of pastor uh, he will really be. If a man doesn't love and doesn't lead his wife, if he does not love and care for and train his children as they grow up, then he won't be able to love and lead the church. And that's what verse 5 says. If a guy is not paying attention at home, is not living it out in his home, then how can he uh, serve God's people? In other words, there must be a private uh, leadership expression of love and care and service before there is a public one. Faithfulness in the home is a priority. So please pray for each of the overseers in our church that we would be faithful in this one because let me let you know it is way easier to preach a sermon than it is to lead a family lovingly. I got a great family. We all, all our pastors have great families. But it is a lot easier to stand up here and teach the Bible than it is to exercise patience and care, long-suffering with children, especially little bitty children, uh, or maybe especially older children. I, th- I think both. <laughs> There's this gap where it's easier, but it's really little and really old. That's where it's challenging. There's this one window of time where it gets a little easier, but that's a challenge. It's, it's, it's a lot easier for me to preach the sermon, step down, greet you, be patient with you, Uh, than it is, or or to have a meeting with you this week, a counseling meeting, or to come to a small group together. It's a lot easier in that context to be a loving guy and patient guy than it is at home with a two-year-old for a pastor. When you've got a pastor who's got a two-year-old, a four-year-old at home, teenager at home, whatever, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to do the public thing than the private thing. And that's why it says here that who you are in private is what matters for public ministry. And that's really true everywhere. In our culture, we have a distinction. We, we sort of have this idea that a marketplace, if you, in the workforce, if you're a leader, that, you know, as long as you do your job, your character and your performance are, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not connected. We just separate them. We do that in politics as well. And sadly, some evangelicals buy into that, that what your character is doesn't matter for you executing your 
job in the marketplace or a political leader or where I'm a coach of a little league team. I don't care where it is. Your character matters for your performance. And we can't disintegrate, which is separate. Integrate is to be a whole person. We are whole people. And so we lead out of who we are, wherever we are. We act out of who we are. And so our character is vital. And so while the world and while politics and while sports and entertainment may divorce character from perform leadership performance, the scripture does not. And the scripture says we must be people of uh, character to lead in the church. Here's another one. It also says there must be hospitable. And I put that under leading the family because if this person is married, then his wife and his children must be on board with the whole hospitality thing because it is a family affair. He must open his heart. He must open his house and be welcoming and caring. So by God's grace, an elder must oversee himself and his home, and he must have a history of doing that. Verse 6 says he must not be a recent convert. So there needs to be a little bit of a track record of this, and it must be noticed by outsiders. It says that, or at least the outsiders that know him would, would get it, would say, yeah, I could see that guy being a leader down at the church. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. What does that mean? Well, if he's, pull, if he's one way pulling the wool over one's eyes, he's one way at church and you meet his neighbor or his coworker and they say, are you serious? That guy's a leader at your church? Oh my goodness, I, I can't even imagine. That is great. What kind of church is this? I mean, if that's the impression, that's not good. He must be respected. That is, he has integrity. Who he is at home is who he is at church, is who he is uh, at work, is who he is when he's interacting with the server at a restaurant, is who he is when he's volunteering to serve in some capacity. Just the same person is what it's saying. Just, just be who you are. Sinner for sure, but just an integrity of life that doesn't overall discredit the gospel or doesn't make your neighbor say, wow, if that guy can get to heaven, I'm in for sure already. Uh, your lost neighbor, if that's the case, then that is a that is a problem. Now, what's so interesting about this profile that we just read is there's almost nothing about what this overseer is to do. What emerges is not a pastoral skill set, but a pastoral character set. The, the lone exception is in verse 2. He must be able to teach. What does that mean? He can read the Bible, study the Bible, understand the Bible, interpret the Bible, and then explain it in a clear way and apply it so that people go, oh, okay, I get that. And they understand who Christ is and what he's done. And uh, he can communicate the scripture in a way that serves others. So he must be able to teach. But other than that, this passage says nothing else about what he does. Now, the scripture says more. We're not going to go there. Uh, it's teaching this one passage and not all the New Testament. But elsewhere we do see in the scripture, must, he must have a leadership gift. Uh, he must have doctrinal knowledge. He must have wisdom. He must have shepherding ability to care for people. He must be able to evangelize. So there's other things in the scripture that explain what he must be able to do. But in here, it just says he must be able to teach. All the other qualifications are not what he does but who he is. And here is the huge point that I promised you and asked you to listen because at one point later in the sermon, now is that moment, uh, I will share a huge point with you that I promised. Here is said point. These qualities are to be true of all Christians and not just overseers. The huge point is this passage applies to you and me. It applies to all of us. See, this is not a super Christian job description. You don't read the New Testament. It's like, this is what a disciple of Jesus looks like. Now, this is what an, an elder looks like. And they're two radically different things. Rather, this is a very simple description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, the difference is that the elder must live this out consistently to be qualified to serve in a particular function or role. So that is true. There's a distinction in terms of he must be consistent in this because as a public leader, uh, he must not discredit the gospel, discredit the message of Christ, that he must not teach one thing and then undermine it with his life. So that's the application to elders. But everything in here is applicable to all of us. 
It's not just the elder that must be sexually faithful. It's not just the overseer that, that well, let's put that on him, but the rest of us, well, we kind of got, we're like, he's varsity on character, and we're like junior varsity, so they're not really expecting, God's not expecting as much from us. I mean, that, he's got to be faithful to his wife, but if I'm faithful to my wife, or if you're a lady, if I'm faithful to my husband, or as a single, if I'm sexually faithful to be celibate, that, like, that doesn't matter. No. It's not like one standard for one person and another for another person. It applies to all of us. What about sober-mindedness? To think clearly, to think soberly about Scripture, to fear the Lord. It's not like, well, man, I'm glad we got a pastor that fears the Lord, so I don't have to. No, we're all called to fear the Lord. We're all called to be, not to be violent. It's not like as long as the elders aren't cussing people out in anger, I can find for me to be verbally violent with people. As long as he's gentle, that'll count for me. I won't have to be gentle with others. Of course not. I mean, we don't read this passage and go, well, the pastor could have one beer, but I could have six or seven. And you know, hey, it's okay for me to get drunk. It's not okay for him to get drunk. And he has to manage alcohol intake, but I don't. Of course not. That's not what the passage is teaching. Uh, It's not like, well, as long as his social media profile is pretty clean and he's not picking fights, man, that's okay because no one's really looking at mine. I'm a Christian, but nobody's, I'm not held to a standard. I can be quarrelsome. I can pick fights. I can be argumentative. I can be arrogant. Of course not. Nobody should read this and go, well, looks like the pastor, as long as he loves his wife and loves his kids, I guess we're good to go. I can do what I want. No, everyone who's married should be committed to their marriage. Every parent should be trying to manage their household as what this passage talks about. This is the job description of a Christian, not of a super saint. These are the basics of what happens when we meet Christ and the Holy Spirit comes into our life and begins to transform our character to look more like Jesus when we orient our lives around him and his purpose. When we are a follower of Christ, a disciple, this is what the lifestyle looks like that we are all called to. The overseer must be consistent in these things so that he doesn't discredit the Lord. But please know, brother or sister, in Christ, you can discredit the gospel by your example as well. You can be dis- bring disgrace on the name of Jesus as well. It's not just the pastor. He might be more public. His, his grievous sin might affect more people publicly than yours. That's true. Uh, however, you equally must be concerned that you not discredit the name of Jesus by your lifestyle. This is not just the profile of what, man, I hope Caleb lives up to that. They said one day he may be an elder here in the near future. Man, I sure hope he does that. I'm, I can't. I'm not going to. No. This isn't just, there is a sense in which you should read this passage and look at your pastors. There is a sense when you should read this passage and consider a potential elder. Yes, there is a sense of that. But ultimately, we should all look at ourselves and say, where am I? This is the mirror of Scripture to me as well well of what it means to follow Jesus. Listen, the, the importance of example of reflecting Christ to others is so key. If, if we want to be a church that reaches out to our city with the gospel, our goal cannot be, let's find like five or six elders that do this stuff, and oh, we're going to have some deacons. Let's get five or six or eight deacons that love Jesus and obey him, and the rest of us just live like hellions. Of course, you don't think that or you wouldn't be here, but of course not. That's not how, no, it's like, what if the whole church embraced this as a calling? What if the whole church says, well, you know what? I want to be sexually faithful. You know what? I want to be sober-minded. I want to have the fruit of the Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to give me self-control. I want to be respectable. What if everybody in the church said, by God's standards, not Bible Belt morality necessarily, but by God's standards, we want to live respectable lives, where other people are drawn in by the decisions we make, by the way that we live, that we're not a lover of money, that we're not going to bow to the idol of our culture. If there's any idol over our city, there's multiple ones, but if there's any clear idol over our city, is it not money and greed and wealth and comfort and image? I mean, I think that's pretty apparent here. So we have to say, no, I don't want to bow down to that. I want to bow down to Christ. That's for all of us. 
What will make a real difference in our community is not when a few people, but when all of us, when an entire church says, we want to view this as something that we're all pursuing. Our elders are accountable to this to function as they function, but we're all accountable to this before Jesus. We want to oversee ourselves. We want to oversee our families by God's grace. And the reason I bring up grace is because no one of us has mastered or will master this list. None of us has perfectly lived out this description. There's only one overseer who's been entirely above reproach, never bringing shame on his father, never discrediting the holy name of God. There's only one who's done that, Jesus There's only one who's been entirely morally pure. We're all, we have all sinned morally. We have all sinned with our lusts and with our sexual practices. All of us have, but there's only one who's been morally pure, never had a sinful thought. That's Jesus. There's only one that's been completely sober-minded. There's only one that's totally controlled himself, had so much self-control that he never even sinned by attitude, by word, or by deed, never indulged the flesh in a sinful way. That's Jesus. There's only one who's been perfectly respectable. It says be respectable. There's only one that's been perfectly respectable, so respectable that we don't merely respect him, but we worship him. That's the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's worthy of worship. There's only been one that's completely gentle. There's only been one that's been entirely hospitable. So hospitable that he left the glory of heaven, took on human flesh, and came and shared the love of God with prostitutes, with tax collectors, even with religious legalists, all kinds of people, all kinds of sinners, he welcomed. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I'll never cast him out. That is perfect hospitality. Loving every stranger, every outsider, every person in need. Only one person's never been quarrelsome. Only one person's never been greedy. Only one person, we could say, has not only never been greedy, not only loved money, but lived his entire life for the purpose of giving and not getting. Lived his whole life to lay it down sacrificially for us. And that's Jesus, the great shepherd. The overseer of our souls models this passage perfectly. This is a picture. If you look at the life of Jesus, every one of these character qualities appear perfectly in his life. And then he dies on a cross, lives a perfect life, but he is crucified. Why? Because we haven't lived this perfectly. And we've broken this. Every, every character quality here, if we're honest, will say, if I haven't done that physically, I've at least done it in my heart. Every one of us have. And so Jesus died so that we could be forgiven and we could find power for change. I want to challenge you today, if you're familiar with the Bible, even if you're not, but if you're familiar with the Bible and you've read this before, you may have just read that and said, man, that's a good standard. Glad somebody's living up to that. Well, nobody lived up to it perfectly but Jesus. But if you've read over this and gone, okay, chapter 3, anyone aspires to be an overseer? Okay, that's not me. Let's go down to verse 8. Deacons, likewise, no, I'm not going to be a deacon. Okay, let's go down to verse 14. And you just skipped over the whole thing. I'm going to challenge you to embrace this passage, to read it and say, you know what? This is a picture of a Christian. This is one of the Bible's pictures. There's a lot of pictures. But this is a picture of what it means to follow the Lord. I'd encourage you to read it again this week. And to set this before you as a, as a goal of a lifestyle by God's grace. To use this as a template not only to measure and qualify leaders, which it is a template for that purpose, but also a template for your own life. That you say, yes, I would like to live my life. I would like to be a hospitable person. I would like to be a gentle person. I would like to be a faithful person with self-control that's sober-minded. I would like to live like this. I would like to be a godly mother or godly father if you have children. I'm going to encourage you to read this and look through it and say, Lord, where are you speaking to me in this passage? 
And as he speaks to you and you see your own fault, you bring that to Christ and ask forgiveness. And he washes away our sin. But he not only does that, the empty tomb means not only can we be forgiven, but we can be empowered to change. And so we say, Lord, not only do I not want to be what I've been, but I want to change. Help me today grow, be a little more gentle by your Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Help me to be a little more self-controlled by your Spirit. Help me. I want to put off that lack of self-control, and I want to put on the character that I find in Christ. By you. And I need your power. I can't do that on my own. So I'm going to ask you to view this as a passage that's for you. At least it's the role may not be, but the character is. And ask the Lord to speak to you and to apply it, and to ch- may he change all of us. I'd also like to ask very seriously that you pray for your pastors and our families. It's sobering that the devil's mentioned twice in here. That's a funny transition. Think about your pastors, the devil. (laughs) That was a funny transition. I didn't do that in the first sermon. But okay, the devil's mentioned twice in here. And at the end, it says that that the elder may not, the overseer may not fall into disgrace, into a snare, which is a trap, a trap of the devil. And so while I believe everything I said earlier, that pastors aren't unique human beings, they are sinful, fallen sheep like all of us. So they're sheep before they are shepherds. Uh, While I don't believe that pastors are special, I do believe that given our calling, if we crash and burn, it affects a lot of people. And so I do think leaders do walk around with a target on them because if the enemy can wipe them out through some failure, through some scandalous sin, through some lifestyle sin, through some hidden sin that's exposed, if this happens, then a lot of people are affected and the name of Jesus is affected and the cause of Christ is affected. And uh, our, uh, uh, our ministry, our mission together is affected when there are legitimate real, I'm not just talking about somebody making some slanderous comment somewhere that's not true, but if there's something real about our lives and we fail in these areas in a tragic way, a lot of people can be affected. So would you pray for us? Pray that our walk with Christ would be close. Pray that we'd have wisdom. Pray that we'd fear the Lord. Pray that we wouldn't drift. Pray for our wives. Pray for our children. Pray for us that God would help us to be uh, consistent just consistent Christians uh, who wouldn't discredit. We don't want to discredit. We want to glorify Christ, not dishonor Christ, just like you. So pray for us about that, I would ask as well. Uh, May we all, by God's grace, sense his call to manage our own hearts and manage our own homes by his grace and for his glory. Because when a family of people a group of people do that and it reflects the essence of Christ. It draws people. People people are drawn to the real deal. People are drawn to Christ when they see one display in his people. So may God do that in us and through us for his glory, for the good of one another, and to reach the many who don't know him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.